invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 18. It's been some time since we've been in Matthew, but we'll be here again now indefinitely with a couple weeks out for Christmas along the way, but we're back into the book of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking this morning at a particular kind of love and the way it works its way out in the life of the church. This morning, we're going to be considering together Jesus' words about disciplining love. Disciplining love, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. I'll begin reading in Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You know, it's just twice in Jesus' earthly ministry that he talks about the church. We have that a lot in the rest of the Bible, but this is just one of two times where he does this. We saw the first several weeks ago in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16 to 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In that passage, Jesus promises that nothing can conquer his church because his own word, his own faithfulness, his own power stand behind the church. Nothing can conquer the church when Jesus builds it. In this passage, Jesus takes a little bit different approach and he teaches us something a little bit different. Here he teaches us really how we can protect and care for the church, maintain this church, this organism that he has given us. In other words, we're to protect the church by resolving sin and conflict within the church. And as we do this, we seek to live out the pursuing, disciplining love of our Heavenly Father. In other words, it's like this. God the Father loves the church and pursues His children. And sometimes He does this when we're running and when we're fleeing. And other times He does this when we're walking close beside Him. And the passage today is we are to portray to live out the pursuing love of the Father when people are running from God. There's a fairly common activity in our household that happens, I don't know, two or three times a week. And this is when I'm about to leave the house, either for work or for meeting or something like this, and my kids catch wind of it before I hit the door. And they have this little game that we don't really call it anything, but I guess it's called guard the door. And so this is an attempt to prevent, prevent dad getting out the door. And so what happens is they see me pick up my bag. Y'all see it every week, my backpack. I'm headed out the door. And, and then one of them spots me and sees us going. And they say, guard the door, as our, our little guy says it, guard the door. And so, 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 they, so they run. And then what happens, they've kind of got this strategy. They make it as hard as possible for me to get out the door. Two of them will place themselves in front of our front door. And, and one will place her hand on the, on the, the padlock so, so I can't open the lock. The other will stand on the far side of the door holding on to the front handle and, and they'll do everything in their power to keep me from getting out the door. Now, thankfully for me, you know, I don't know if they were 15, 16, 17, 18, it'd be a little bit of a trial, but at their age at this point, I can usually make it out just fine. 
And so what happens is at this moment, I go and I'm scrambling for the lock and pulling on the door at the same time and, you know, trying not to crush anyone as I open the door. And then I open and I walk out and then I walk out to my car. And then there's the second stage of guard the door. Because before I can get to my car, they line themselves up alongside the car and won't let me in the car. And so now I'm prying children and trying not to break the handle on my car as I get in the car. So what happens is in stages, my kids are guarding the door. They're, they're preventing me really from going out the door. And in a very different way, that's a little picture of what we have here. In other words, as Christians, we're to pursue one another in love and guard the door of the church. We don't just let people wander away. We don't just let them pursue sin. We guard it. We're, we're proactive. We, with great energy, invest ourselves in relationships to guard the door of the church. Well, as we do this, what happens and really introduces this idea is that Jesus introduces to us a problem. In verse 15, in one phrase, he introduces us very briefly to this problem. He says, if your brother sins against you. So the problem is sin. Sin is a violation of God's will or falling short of God's glory or God's design for our lives. Romans 3.23 teases it out this way, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so quickly we see two things here. One, Jesus says sin is a problem, and Romans tells us that everyone sins. You ever have this experience, let's say either you've done it yourself, or you either teach with or work with or parent little children, and let's imagine that, I don't know, this week you've got a fourth or fifth grader, and they bring a note home from school. Johnny was disturbing class today. Well, Johnny's thinking he's got to take this note home and he's got to get it signed by mom or dad. And so what's his defense? He says, mom or dad, everyone was doing it, right? That's my excuse. Everyone was involved. That's an excuse I've tried. And what God's word says when it comes to sin, this is true. Everyone is doing it. But he also says there is no excuse. You see, Romans 3 says all have sinned. It's true. And Romans 6.23 says that the penalty for our sin, the wages of our sin is death. But Romans 1 also tells us that since the foundation of the world, God has revealed his attributes through the things that are clearly seen so that we are without excuse. So we can quickly see here, we have a problem. It's true, everyone sins. But it's not true that we have an excuse. We are all accountable before God for our sin. Everyone sins, but we're all accountable. Now, what Jesus teaches here is that we never sin in a vacuum. In other words, our sin affects other people. Now, sometimes we can see this very clearly. For instance, if someone were to take their fist and strike you in the face, it'd be very clear what the effect of that was. But other times, it's less direct. It's less easy to see. But Jesus teaches that there are domino effects in our relationships from our sin. And there's a second part of this problem. It's not just that someone sins. It's that this person sins and they are stubborn in their sin. This person won't listen. So there's a sin. And then there's a stubborn refusal to listen to input about that situation. Verse 16 says, they will not listen. Verse 17, they still refuse to listen. So let's note the pattern here. This person sins. Everyone does that. But this person persists in, stubbornly persists in their sin. Even when someone lovingly comes alongside this person and says, hey, 
we're, we're concerned about you. We're concerned about this pattern that we see in your life. And at this point, without someone coming alongside each of us individually, I think it's good for us to pause and ask, what persistent or what stubborn patterns of sin are present in our lives? In other words, if, if, if God's Spirit were to be that one and God's Spirit were to come alongside you and say, put his, put his finger on and say, here's where I see persistent, stubborn patterns of sin in your life, what would that look like for you? Or maybe let's put it this way. What thing can your husband or your wife not bring up to you for fear of how you'll respond? What area can that friend not approach because it's untouchable? What persistent patterns of sin are present in our lives? You may have noticed by now that I close just about every sermon here with these words, let's respond to the word in repentance and faith. Well, why is that? That's because every time the word of God is presented to us, whether it's in a large setting like this or a small group setting, God God calls us to respond. He calls us to respond to his word. And his word tells us we do this in repentance. We admit before God, again, we need your grace today. God, my sin is in a distant memory. It's a present reality in my life. God, help me. And we renew our faith in Christ and we press forward in living and we thank God in saving us from our sin. Well, this brings us to the most well-known section, a process for conflict resolution. Sometimes we call this a process for church discipline. And in brief, it's just five steps. We're going to go through it in a little more detail, but if someone sins, we've seen that. And then there's this private conversation or confrontation. And then you kind of make that a small group conversation or confrontation. Ultimately, it becomes a church-wide or community-wide, a corporate confrontation. And ultimately, if that doesn't work, there's an excommunication or a removing of that person. Well, before we jump in here, I want to kind of frame it a little bit for us. What kind of setting is Jesus addressing? He's talking about a church community. Okay, now we all have different responsibilities in life. So uh, imagine, with, I'll just, I don't know, I'll just think through some of mine this morning. Okay, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a, a follower of Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm an employee. I'm a supervisor. I'm a church member. I'm a pastor. And so you st- by all these things, all these kind of layers, and we got what, what your roles and responsibilities are, maybe they, I think, likely are different than mine, but some of them are the same. And what happens is we get kind of a complex network of these things going, and, and that makes it difficult to, to understand how this applies. So in other words, in an employment setting, it might be irresponsible to go to that person directly. But it might not be. It might be someone else's responsibility, even if you're involved. Or it might be that, we're in a legal setting, and Romans 13 tells us that we have to submit ourselves to governing authorities, and there are certain ways that the government tells us we have to live out certain responsibilities. So in cases of abuse, if you're a mandated reporter, you don't have an option. You report that to the authorities. That's, that's not our choice. We, we submit to civil governmental authorities in that way. So there are different responses in different settings, and sometimes this makes it tricky when you're in multiple relationships with the same person. So for instance, let's say you work with someone, but you also go to the same church. Or you're in a family business with people, but you also are church members with those same people. And so it's as these relationships get complex that it can be difficult. God's word is clear, but the application of the process requires great wisdom from the Spirit 
of God. But the first thing we see in this process is that it requires a sense of personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Jeremiah 23, 29, the Lord speaks and he says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Sometimes God's word is like, I don't know, a comforting arm around the shoulder. It comes along us and encourages, it comes alongside us and encourages us. At other times, God's word is like a hammer and it hits us right between the eyes. And verse 15 is a hammer. I mean, it is right between the eyes. I've known the process in this passage since I was a kid. And as a pastor, it's one I have to know because it's laid out clearly and even in Every church I've been in, there's some reflection of this process laid out in the documents of that church. But even being very familiar with this passage, the emphasis in verse 15 is remarkable. Now I say this morning I'm speaking to you, you don't know if I'm speaking to you or you apart from context. We don't know if it's an individual or a group. Now, in the South, we've come up with a genius solution for this. We can speak to y'all. And we speak to all y'all, we know it's all y'all. And so, so we're speaking to everyone here. Y'all come, that means y'all come over, or you come, you come here, right? I mean, we, we get that there, there's a difference in tone. But in kind of more proper, formal English, it's not always clear if this is the case or not. But Greek has multiple forms of the word you. It has you, singular, and it has y'all, collectively. In it's not always clear because sometimes there are parts of Scripture that we, are assume, that we assume are for us individually when they're actually for us collectively. So, for instance, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul writes and he, and he speaks about that, that, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a lot of times we think that's like your body. But what Paul's talking about there is y'all collectively are the body, the, the temple of the Spirit. So we hear that, and sometimes we're quick to make it individual, but Paul's speaking about the church as a whole, even though it's also true that God lives in in us individually and teaches that elsewhere. Matthew 18, 15 is so exceptionally and so emphatically the opposite of this, it's remarkable. The first step involves clear, individual, personal responsibility, and there's no way of getting around that. Every you here, there ain't no y'all. Every you is you. You singular, you, you, you. Listen to this. If your singular brother sins against you singular, you singular, go and tell him his fault between you singular and him alone. If he listens to you singular, you singular have gained your singular brother. And if that's not enough, Jesus throws in alone right in the middle there to make sure we get it. It's you. It's your individual personal responsibility before the Lord. Why am I making such a big point out of this? I really believe that 90% or more of church conflict would go away if we followed this simple principle. If we followed the very clear, remarkably clear teaching from Jesus Christ. If someone sins against you, or if you have a problem, you go to that person alone. If you're not willing to do that, or you can't do it in love, Drop it. Don't stew about it. Don't speak about it. Be done with it. Now, one of our big difficulties here is that a lot of what we get worked up about 
is it sin? It's preference. In fact, I think if you wrote down a list of things that cause consternation in churches, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them would be preferences. So that makes it tricky, doesn't it? Remember a few minutes ago and we said, you know, what persistent or stubborn sin is God's Spirit confronting in us? One of those is our failure to obey Jesus' words. If your brother sins, you go to him alone. Now, it may be that you need to get counsel about the situation. It may be that there's a set of complex circumstances and relationships like we described at the beginning. But getting counsel ain't gossiping. Getting counsel is receiving input that allows you to wisely and lovingly have the conversation you know that you're supposed to have. So there's heavy, heavy weight here. If you have a concern, it's your responsibility to go to that person. But there's a next step when that one doesn't work, and Jesus says that's community involvement. So the next step is pretty simple. If that doesn't go well, you take someone else with you. So how do you know? I mean, you've given it your best shot. You've gone to the person. It's time to take someone else. Well, here are some quick thoughts about confrontation. How do we do this? Jesus says in Matthew 7 that we ought to check our own eye first. In other words, he says, we get real good at looking for specks in someone else's eye, and we got a big old log, a big old beam of sin sticking out our eye. And Jesus says, check your own eye first. Check your heart first. So before you confront someone about being grumpy and unkind, it's wise to reflect how you reflect the love of Christ. Secondly, seek to overlook the offense if you can or you should. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of offenses. I mean, can you imagine if, if we handled every little thing this way? We'd be in war real quick, wouldn't we? If every time that someone sinned, we're like, ah, I'm making a big deal out of it. 1 Peter 4 says that when we love one another, we have to walk through life in a way that recognizes we're sinners and, and give each other some room. Cut a little slack. A culture of grace recognizes that God has loved us and been gracious toward us and seeks to be gracious toward others in the same way. But as you approach this moment, and sometimes it's necessary, ask God to give you a humble heart. James 4, 6 through 10 says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we approach others in humility rather than selfish pride, God often uses the softening and humbling of our heart to prepare that person's heart, to soften that person. But sometimes, no matter how much you don't want to do it or how much preparation you make, sometimes it is necessary to have a conversation. And in that case, be kind, be loving, be clear, and be truthful. Ephesians 4 tells us we are to speak the truth in love. Now, we all kind of tend toward one pole or the other. We got our truth people and we got our love people. You know, the truth people tell it like it is. And the love people don't ever want to tell it because it might hurt the person's feelings. And what God's word says is for, for a Christian living life in the spirit of God, what we do is we speak truth in love. You can't separate them. In other words, if, if we love apart from truth, it's just mush. It's not, it's not real. But if we just speak 
blindly and harshly into a situation without love, then we're reflecting a character of a God that's not true. And so, so we link truth and love together. God's word tells us what is true, and it tells us how we share what is true, and we do this in love as God has been kind to us. So now we've done our best to take care of the beam that's in our own eye, approach this person humbly, and now we've got to have a conversation. What next? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15 says that one witness isn't enough. It's one, one word against another. Take two or three, and that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In the case of a church, we aren't talking witnesses to a crime, hopefully. I mean, maybe occasionally that happens. Most of the time, that's not what we're talking about. We're really talking about witnesses to a difficult conversation. Because the point isn't to convict someone in a court of law. The point is to help someone see a, a fault, a sin in their life. And so you bring other people to add weight to the conversation. Now, you don't want this to be just anyone. You want this to be godly friends or trusted leaders. This is important, one, for, for the, the nature of that conversation, but secondly, because there's another step coming. And these people may need to lead into that next step because the third step here is what we might call community discipline. Community discipline. So we've gone from personal responsibility to community involvement now to community discipline. And there are a couple of steps here to this community discipline. The first one is exhort. Exhort the person. So in each stage of communication, we're trying to reach this person's heart. So individually, we're reaching out to them and based on our relationship or what we see in their lives, we are in love trying to reach their heart to, to lead them toward repentance. When that doesn't work, we try to bring others, small group alongside us, and, and the group tries to exhort the person, reach their heart, and lead them toward repentance. And when this doesn't work, we involve the entire church community in the same process. So the point here isn't that we're trying to ostracize a person, it's that we're trying to get the person to listen, trying to get the person to hear the truth. So the point of telling the church isn't to inform them, it's to involve the entire church community in this process. It's people covenanted together to love and care for one another, coming alongside others. So now it's not just two or three people pleading with and praying for that person, it's an entire church community pleading with and praying for that person. Now this doesn't mean that every individual in a church will call that person or have an opportunity to talk with that person. It just means that collectively, we together are doing all we can to reach that person. I was thinking about this week and thinking about a number of years ago when one of my younger siblings was a teenager. My dad was still living and he was, th this, this sibling, this brother was going through a very difficult time in life. He was making a lot of stupid and sinful choices and they were messing up his life and affecting the family and it, it was a big deal. And I can remember my dad walking through this and doing everything he could to, to, to reach my brother, to get his heart investing time in him. And I remember at one point coming alongside him, he talked about putting him in his hip pocket. He was just trying to stay close to him. And, and this brother was just having a hard time listening. And I look back on that and I think, what was my dad doing? He was doing everything he could to be heard. He was doing everything he could in love to, to get that, that teenage guy, hard-headed, growing up, to get him to listen. Well, you do that in families, and the church is a family. The point is that sometimes we do all we can to come alongside one another, to help us align our will with God's will, to align our lives after the model of Jesus' life. And as much as no one likes doing it, sometimes that involves having difficult conversations along the way. And I don't know anyone who enjoys it. I sure don't, but it's just a part of what God says we are to do. 
So we exhort, we exhort, we exhort, we exhort. We reach out, we reach out, we reach out. We try to get them to listen, 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 listen. And when that doesn't work, ultimately it can result in what we call excommunication. Now this is a big church word. It just means exclusion or, or removal from a community. We never want to reach this stage, which is why we ought to work really, really hard at the earlier stages because we don't want to end up here. And now that we've reached what we often think of as church discipline, the reality is that all of life together is informal church discipline or what we call discipleship. The words are related. In other words, what we're doing is hopefully individually, life on life, touching life, coming alongside one another and, and, and maturing one another in Christ. It's a little bit like rearing children. I mean, if you have your child and you feed them, all you do is feed them and help them survive. You don't talk to them, you don't form them, you don't discipline them, you don't shape them, you don't instruction, instruct them, you, you do nothing formative. And then at 18, when that child shakes his fist in your face and walks out the door, who's to blame? At some level, you, you know, if you invest nothing in that child. Now, sometimes you do everything you can and there's nothing you can do about it, or you do your best and you make some mistakes along the way and it happens anyway. But the point is, we know, like with kids, we don't leave them to their own devices. We walk alongside them. We say, hey, don't chew food with your mouth open. Don't pick your nose, at least not in public. <laughs> don't speak that way. Don't hit. Be kind. Obey. Listen. Right? What's this? It's formative discipline. It's shaping discipline. And we do this in the life of the church as well. That's informal. It should be happening all the time so that this doesn't need to happen. But sometimes we reach the point where we get to formal corrective discipline, what we typically think of as church discipline. And this is the act ultimately of removing a person from membership or from preventing them from coming to the table of the Lord because it's for those who are in good fellowship with the church. Well, why in the world, if it's so difficult, if it's so unpleasant, why in the world would we practice church discipline? Why would a parent discipline her child? Love. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And then the writer of the Hebrews follows it up by saying, fathers discipline their children when they love them. So we try to model God's love by saying, you're making a really stupid choice or really sinful choice, and it's affecting your life or other lives in this way. We do it for the sake of love. Well, what then is the goal of church discipline. It's not excommunication. You're really, really doing everything you can to, to stop, and you're guarding the door so you don't end up there. I mean, sometimes we end up there, but that's never the goal. The goal is always restoration, loving restoration. Just like when you're trying to reach the heart of your child. You're, you're, you're speaking into your child's life, you're, you're shaping him, you're forming her so that there's, there's a long-term healthy relationship with that child, not just with you, but with life, with, with success, with other people. So the goal is to restore a professing believer to fellowship with God and with the believing community. Well then, when is it that we should exercise church discipline? Just kind of four principles here. One is when the sin is visible and clear. In other words, I've had times where someone said, well, so-and-so made me angry and they treated me this way. It's like, well, maybe, but... Maybe they're just more direct than you are and you didn't take it the right way. Also, the sin must be verifiable. In other words, there has to be some level of demonstrable proof that this has happened because no one wants to be strung up without evidence. 
The Bible says there are two or three witnesses. There are a lot of grumpy people in the world. If you did this with every grumpy person, you'd run out of people real quick. So the sin has to be serious. It, it needs to be something significant in the life of the church. And fourthly, when the sinner is unrepentant. In other words, even if you commit a very serious sin, but you're repentant before the Lord, there's a process of restoration. So the sin is visible, verifiable, serious, and unrepentant, then you reach this point. Now at this point, I know everyone is so excited and so encouraged because there's no, there is nothing more optimistic than thinking about this, is there? But it's remarkable because this passage actually ends with a beautiful promise in verses 18 through 20. And the first thing that Jesus promises is that the church has heavenly power. Now we've got a lot on the church in Acts and the rest of the New Testament, but this, as we see, is one of just two times that Jesus talks about the church. And in both cases, he uses the same language. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The point is this, the church exists on earth under the authority of King Jesus, and it's our job to act on his behalf. And so when the church acts, it's acting as an agent of the king. We're kingdom agents, not, not necessarily individually, but collectively. And so we affirm or deny a person's profession of faith based on what that person believes about Jesus and where that person lives in a way that shows that Jesus is their king. So Matthew 16 Jesus speaks there, and he says to Peter, what you've said is true. And Peter says, you are the Christ. He, he believes the truth about Jesus, and Jesus says, you're my follower. Here, Jesus says that we can also deny Jesus by living in a way that shows that, that, that we're not God's child. So we can either deny the faith by our words, by our, by our belief, or secondly, by the way that we live. How we live and what we believe matters. So the local church recognizes who is and who isn't a part of the church. This means we've got to know each other. It means we've got to be actively involved in one another's lives. It means we've got to be living in relationship with each other and, and showing up. And this, is why we've, this is why we've said that church membership is a com covenant commitment lived out in an active relationship. It's not about simply having your name in a role. It's about showing up. It's about being involved in one another's lives. It's about being an identifiable group of believers under the authority of a local church. We're accountable. We should know one another. Now, this is one of the great challenges facing our church because we've got over 2,000 people we don't know on our roles. And Christ says we're, we're accountable for those people. And that's something we have to pursue. So there's this promise of heavenly power for the church. There's also this promise about the power of unity. If two or three are gathered, uh, agree on earth, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now it's important to note the context here. There are a lot of beautiful promises in Scripture about prayer, but this isn't probably a promise about prayer. It's actually a promise about the church acting on behalf of Jesus. And, and what, what God says here is that if two or three agree about what should be done, the church agrees about what should be done, God himself is acting. God himself acts through the church. God works through the church to make his will known in the earth today. But remarkably and most beautifully, Jesus closes with a promise of his presence. Verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When believers gather to revere and worship Jesus' name, what happens? Jesus comes there too. Now this morning, you thought you walked into church. 
and you thought you saw some other people walking into church. But imagine with me this morning that, that as, as we come together, as John and Charlie and Jim and Dennis and, and Sarah and Veronica, as, as, as we walk in the door together this morning, Jesus walks in too. Jesus is here among us. When the people of God gather to worship God's name, gather to exalt the name of Christ, Jesus is there too. So in Hebrews, when he says, I will never leave you, never forsake you, he promises here to actively be present among us. It's a remarkable thing. It's not an imaginary thing. It is a promise that we can rely on that's given to us in the word of God. Now, our problem is we're seeing with eyes of faith because we can't see him physically present here, but brothers and sisters, Jesus is here. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have refused to bow down before an idol. And they've been cast into a fiery furnace. And they're condemned there. The fire is so hot that the people who tossed them in died. It's a fire that would consume them immediately. And yet when they enter this fire, they are not burned. And there are three people walking around. But then the king and his soldiers are looking on. And they see a fourth person there. And they say, what's going on? There's a fourth person. And that person looks like a son of God. It's the pre-incarnate Christ there protecting his people from the flames. And in that moment, people could see. But brothers and sisters, if you could see this morning with true eyes as God sees, Jesus is walking around here just like he was in those flames. When the people of God gather, the Son of God gathers with us. We gather to exalt his name and he appears with us. Maybe we can't see him, but he is here. Is it remarkable that in the middle of this topic that no one loves to talk about, church discipline, Jesus gives us a promise that anyone would want to talk about. The eternal son, the creator of the universe, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power is here this morning. Does that not make you want to stand and shout? Does that not make you want to lift your hands and praise the name of the one who reigns on high and yet who deigns to show his face here among us? When you gather in my name, Jesus says, it's not just you gathering, I gather with you. Worshiping Jesus together brings the presence and power of Jesus to us. And the presence of Jesus reminds us of the pursuing love of God for us. Because isn't it true that while we were sinners, God loved us. And God loved us by sending his son for us to die in our place, in the place of sinners who don't deserve his mercy, sinners who don't deserve his grace, sinners who don't deserve his love. And he sent Jesus in our place. While we were sinners, God pursued us. You see, this passage is ultimately about the pursuing love of our heavenly father who chases sinners running the other way so that he might redeem them from their sin. And if you're here this morning, God is pursuing you. God's love is chasing you. God's love is reaching out to you. Would you turn from your sin, trust Christ, and be welcomed to the arms of a loving, heavenly Father? Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.